reign <clears throat> over all things. That we can trust your purposes for everything. Life can be difficult, uncertain. There are times of stress. There are times of discouragement. There are just times of downright despair. In those times, you reign as sovereignly and as well and as lovingly and as good as you do when times are good and peaceful and prosperous. Help us, Lord, not to judge you feebly based upon what it is that is going on, based upon our circumstances. But help us, Lord, to judge you based upon the truth of your word as you present yourself to us as those who are in Christ who have been promised wonderful and great things to come. And so we are a people as pilgrims, sojourners, knowing that in this life now, we will not receive the fullness of what it is that we desire, but we will receive it one day when Christ returns. The one who reigns completely over all things now will one day set all things right. And we will do as the letter of 1 Peter encourages us to do, to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. So we look to you now, Lord. We pray that you would work the truths of your word deep into our heart. We might understand them, embrace them, grasp them, and apply them and live them out and truly show that we as a people believe and know this world is not our home. We are looking forward for a land that is still to come. And may our lives prove that to be true. Lord, by your grace, you will help us to do that. And it's to you now that we look. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is good to know that God is the Almighty, reigning and ruling over all things, isn't it? There's always some sort of disturbing, discouraging news that's going on, tends to um, upset us, throw us off, imbalance the, you know, the balance that we are so, we're, you know, we're working really hard to try and preserve in our lives, and then the Lord does something. Why? To cause us to have to look to him, to depend upon him. And um, so that's good for us to continue to re be reminded of who he is and who we are. And today, we want to look at this idea. The title of our sermon is Spiritual Slavery. We want to look at this idea of what we see in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 22 today, as we will read the passage shortly. But being reminded of, of this, this reality of who we are in Christ, this new identity that we've been given in Christ, and then how that is helpful for us to live out this new reality identity of who we are in Christ in very real and practical ways. A couple of the things, again, that I think are helpful for us to remember as we get into a text like this is just to be reminded of some of the things that we've seen as recently as chapter 5 regarding the things that um, we should know as far as our position in Christ so that it helps us then adopt this mindset of the Bible t talking about us in terms of being a slave to God. I know people don't like that term. We don't like that term, right? I don't want to be under, like, the idea of being under anybody's authority runs 
um, directly you know, against our autonomous, independent sin nature that we still have. Um, we don't want to be under anybody's rule. But for the believer, it's good. The Bible says that, as we'll see today, someone's going to be your master. As, being, as, as a human being, it is unavoidable. You are going to have a master. And what our text tells us today is that there's only two options. Either your master is sin and you are a slave to sin, or your master is God and you are his slave. And that's the way that God sees all of the world. I'm, you know, a text like this reminds me of what it is, this spiritual reality that we've seen all throughout the book of the Bible. There's, there's two masters. There's either sin, Satan, in, in his world, or there's God, right? There's two trees to eat from. There are, in Proverbs, there are two women, the woman folly and the woman wisdom. There's two kingdoms. There's darkness and their light. I mean, this is how God views and sees all things. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, there is no going back to Adam. We've seen that. But there, it is possible for those who are in Christ to have the, the reign of sin still working in you, as we have seen. We saw earlier in chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. As a believer, we are admonished and encouraged to not let sin reign. You can't go back to the old dominion, to the old, the old kingdom of darkness. But it is possible for that kingdom of darkness to encroach into your life and to sometimes such a great degree that it looks like you're under its power and its reign once again. But a couple of the things that we know are true for us as believers. Believers, we have a new position before God. This new position is based upon his grace. This new position is possible because of the work of Christ. And this new position breaks into the practical of how we live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And what he's been doing in Romans is he's been building these truths regarding the work of Christ and the believer's position in Christ for us to see ourselves positionally in him. And as the book goes on, he then he, he gets into the practical functionality of it. Okay, so if this is your position, you need, to be, you need to start living according to the new position that you have, your identity that you have. And just remember, you got into the position by his grace. And he keeps you in this position by his grace. And he will finish this position, this condition, by his grace in your life. And it's from the standpoint of receiving unmerited favor and being in the grace of God that then the believer seeks to live and practice the godliness that we see so often encouraged for us in Scripture. In other words, we are, grown, we are trying to be like Christ not to get into a favorable position with him, because that's impossible, but we um, practice in being like Christ out of an overflow of already being in that position with him. There's a huge difference. One is law, one is gospel. The believer um, lives out of the position of the gospel, not based upon what you have done or what you could do, but based upon what Christ has done. And now being in Christ via the work of Christ, through the preaching of the gospel, we then move forward to live a life that's honoring to him. And always being reminded that that is your, that is your functional platform. That is your, your, your operating system. There are no regular updates to your operating system, right? There is just one operating system from which you have. It is in Christ. It's a good one. It's the best one. Just stick with it and grow from there. 
And so then we get into what we're going to see this today, this morning, in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. As now that I am in Christ, and he talks, he, he talks about my new nature as being a slave of his. What does that look like? What does that mean for me? Is that good? Is that bad? Should I embrace that idea? Should I reject that idea? That's all the stuff that we're going to be seeing this morning. So join me, if you will, in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. I'm going to read the text, and then I want us to look at a few things um, that we see in it that I pray are honoring to the Lord and helpful to us. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting in that from the things which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 6, 23 being one of the most well-known passages in Scripture because it does a great job of kind of synthesizing what it is that he's spoken about in the preceding verses. But we want to work our way through it and notice a few things this morning. Um, In verse 15, he poses a question, and it's similar, different, but it's similar to the question that he posed in chapter 6, verse 1, right? Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So if 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 the showing of God's grace highlights his glory and... Um, my sinful condition requires his grace, well, then why don't we just continue to sin so that he might uh, dispense more grace and that way he might be more glorified in what he does. And Paul just says that's that's ridiculous thinking. And so with the same thing, he asks this question in verse 15. And it's built upon what he said in verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. There's been this positional change that has fundamentally taken place for everybody who is in Christ. You are no longer under the law. And it doesn't mean that then we do away with the law because he has said earlier in chapter 3, verse 31, for the believer, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So the law, the law turns into something different. It becomes, it becomes a good guide for the life of the believer. How do I know, and now as a Christian, how I should live, what I should do, what, is ple- what pleases God, what doesn't please God? Well, he's explained all that in his law. So it turns into something that is actually a useful tool for the believer. 
But for the unbeliever, we're still under the condemnation of the law. Do this, do this, do this. You can't. Someone must do it for you on your behalf. And when you come to Christ by faith, you now enter into a new realm of which you are living in by God's grace. And the do this, do this has been fulfilled in what Christ has done. And now the believer lives in that new reality, no longer under the law in that way, but under grace. And so the question is, well, then what, well, well, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? All right, sweet. So now I'm in this new position of grace. I guess I can just sin away. Because Christ has paid for all my sin, past, present, and future. And there are churches that promote that doctrine. And if that sounds wild and crazy to you, just do some poking around. You'll find it's not very far from you. When I was reading through verse 15, I just thought to myself, we really are trying to find out a way to keep on sinning, aren't we? Like the reason why these questions come up is because sometimes we just, we're still look, really looking for a way to, to be able to sin and get away with it. But for the mindset of the believer, we should be able to see through these things. And so the first thing that we see him address in verse 16, and which would be our first point if you're taking notes, is that the slavery, to, the slavery for all mankind is just simply stated in verse 16 as a, as a spiritual reality for everyone. Slavery is simply stated. And he breaks it up into two broad categories. Do you not know? Right? The question is, well, then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? The, the answer, by no means. And then he makes a statement here. And this is regarding the spiritual condition of every single person. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And there's two options. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You're going to serve somebody. This is just, you just need to know that this is a spiritual fact of the matter. Everybody is going to serve somebody or something. No human being is so autonomous and independent to where they are not under somebody's mastery. Everybody is mastered by somebody, by something. And at the end of the day, you have two options. You're either going to be a slave of the one whom you obey in being of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And he's going to continue to press the point here that your master, whoever your master is, is actually going to affect the way you live your life. You will prove who your master is by the way that you live your life. There is a lot of lip service going around in many different circles. Oh, I love the Lord. Oh, he's my, Jesus is my savior. He's my king. But then you look at the way in which they live their lives. And it's completely incompatible with 
the life of, of Christ. Now, the hard thing for us is that none of us live a life completely compatible with Christ. So at, at some point, people are poking in my life and in your life. That's not consistent with Christ. Now, that's, that, that, that's kind of the whole encouragement here. For, if, I'm, if I am a slave to God, a slave to righteousness, and he is my master, then he really should be informing the way that I live. And I should be mindful of the ways in which I live that are inconsistent with Christ. And, and do what with that? Let it go? Just ignore it? Ah, oh, no big deal. I'm under grace. Don't sweat it. Hey, you're under grace too. Don't sweat it. No big deal. Or what does the slave to God want to do in their life? Don't they, don't they yearn and want to be more like Christ? Let me, I want to read to you guys um, Psalm 135. And there's a parallel passage in Psalm 115 as well. I was reading through this earlier this week. And I thought to myself, this is really helpful in what it is that we're talking about. Psalm 135 Verses 15 through 18. And this is and this para, this is almost said verbatim in Psalm 115 as well. Psalm 135, 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. You are going to become like whatever you behold. You're going to become like your master. It's just, it's an impossibility for life to be otherwise. For those of us who are in Christ, thank the Lord that we have the Holy Spirit working in us, who is helping us become like him. As we behold him, that's, that's the, you know, the real key. I've always said, like, the, the real functional, practical aspect of the glory of God is that when you, as you cultivate a mindset of, of, of seeing the glory of God and desiring the glory of God and his glory is put more on display and you're beholding his glory, it is a real useful tool for you becoming like him because you will become like whatever you behold. And so behold him, behold his majesty, behold his glory, and you will see that as you behold him, as the song says, look full at his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Look to Christ, look to the glory of God, and you will see yourself cultivate an appetite for him and becoming more like him. You will become like your master as you behold him. And so we're encouraged to continue to look to him and to behold him. To be a slave in this passage implies ownership, dominion, possession. You are owned by either sin and Satan or you are owned by God. For those of us who are in Christ, so those of us who are owned by God, I don't know about you, but I, I read that and I, man, I find, such, I find such rest and help in that. Like for me to be a slave of God, I don't have any problem with that. I like it. I want it. 
because it means that there has been a real change that's taken place. Look, I know what I was like in my BC, my before Christ days, and I know what, what being under that, that master was like and the things that I did and the person that I was. Miserable, wretched. But now, because of his grace bringing me into his kingdom and having him as my master, I rejoice in that. that that's such good news for me, and I pray that it is for you as well. I think it's just that the, Jesus would say this, and, and maybe in more simple terms, in Luke 6.43, regarding our slavery, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. People will prove who their master is if you watch long enough. And this is the reason why 2 Peter chapter 2 they think this is probably more of a, um, a nuanced way of looking at it. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Peter's warning the believer to be on guard against false teachers. Because this is what the false teachers do. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And he'll go on to say this, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What, is, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. These are people who, who are never truly converted. They have, they have this understanding, this intellectual assent of who God is and what Christ has done, but yet they, they're ne they ne their nature is never fundamentally changed. And you see this, that for a moment, they're zealous for the Lord. They want to be involved. They make this profession of faith. But then after a while, they go back to the vomit from which they came from and wallowing back into the mud from which they came because they never changed from being truly who they were. They, as dogs, they remained dogs. As sows, they remained sows. And they went back to where they were. And their last condition is worse than the first. These are people who were never truly transferred into the kingdom of God but went and lived back under the rule of their own master. And he says, and to, to connect the idea that obedience is such a fundamental part of the life of the believer that is now brought into slavery under God, he actually puts it in terms of you are obedient slaves either of sin, to which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You are obedient slaves of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Not to say that your obedience garners you righteousness, because we've already seen how that's garnered by the work of Christ. But obedience is such a key and fundamental, a natural overflow of the life of the believer that he inserts obedience in here into the life of the, the slave of God. We should be walking in obedience to the Lord as slaves of the Lord. It should be just a normal part of the Christian 
life and the Christian makeup. And then he rejoices. We see this in verses 17 through 18. Not just the fact that slavery is simply stated in verse 16, but in 17 and 18 we see the slavery to God comes from a changed heart. That slavery to God, how does this happen and what does it look like in the life of the, of the true convert? It's because it's been done at the heart level. Second point would be is that slavery to God comes about by a changed heart. What does he say in verse 17, right? 16, he, he simply states the reality that you, me, everybody will be a slave to somebody. In verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of, of, of righteousness. He immediately in verse 17 gives the credit where credit is due. But thanks be to God. This type of change, I'm telling you, being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, being transferred from being a slave to sin to being a slave of righteousness, a slave of God, it, it, it requires the work of God. And I know that that might sound like a very simple truth, and it is, but it's profound when you think about what must take place. God himself must intervene or, the, or, or it will not, it cannot be done. Why do you pray for, those who, for your family members and friends who don't know Christ? Who do you pray to and who are you asking to do this work? God, why? Because he's the only one that can do it. It takes the mighty hand, the powerful hand in the work of God to make this change happen in someone's life. And so he's thinking, I, I think, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. This wasn't just like a momentary change. This wasn't just a flash in the pan. I remember when I first came to know Christ, all my friends that I would hang out with and party with were just like, it's just a phase. It's just a phase he's going through. Don't worry, we'll get the old Nick back and it'll be wonderful again. And I, and I feel like I was like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress running out of the gate saying like, life, life, eternal life. I'm leaving the city of destruction, man. I'm not going back. Why would I want to go back? That place is burning to the ground. Why? Because there's been a, a, there's been a fundamental change that took place. God, he got a hold of my heart. He completely changed it. You know what he did? He ruined my life to get me there. Like I thought things were going so well. And then he begins to take and to take. And so I turned to, to things that I, of the world that I thought, okay, this will make me feel better. It'll make me feel better. And guess what? It does for a little while. And then guess what? You feel worse afterwards. But when the loving kindness of God appeared, and Jesus Christ, while I was yet a sinner, died for me. And God's kindness brought me to repentance. 
I became obedient from the heart. It was such, such a change that took place. I mean, this, this, this is a spiritual biblical truth. There has to be a fundamental difference and change in your life when you come to know Christ. And for kids that are, and praise the Lord for all the Christian families in this room raising their kids to know these things that, are, that you probably have, for the most part, pretty good kids. But guess what? Good ain't going to cut it. They need to know Christ. They need to become obedient from the heart. I don't know if you know this, parents, but your children can be obedient on the outside and in the, out, in, in the inside, just completely defiant. That's what we're always going for in our parenting, in our shepherding. This obedience from the heart that must change. And he says that they were Obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. I mean, you were committed, again, being in the passive voice, meaning it's a, it's a work that God did. He handed you over. He committed you to this obedience of the heart. And it's to the gospel. The standard of teaching that he's talking about here, it's, it literally means a mold, an imprint. Your heart was molded to the gospel. We're getting into this time of year, right? In a couple months, fall, baking ensues. Everyone, you know, starts to make their little imprint sugar cookies. Christmas time comes and you're making these little sugar cookies with your kids and they look like snowmen and Christmas trees and all this kind of stuff like that. That's the mold, that's the imprint. People that come to know Christ that are now slaves to God have a heart that has been put into a mold. It's been melted. It's been put into a mold, and it comes out shaped like the gospel. Does your heart look like the gospel? Is your heart shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is composed of what? Forgiveness, mercy, kindness, grace, a love for the truth, righteousness, to be like him? Absolutely, yes. Do you have a, a different way of looking at life and thinking? Have you been, do you have a, an, an inner, inner man that's now been shaped, truly shaped by the gospel? I think if we were to be honest, I know that, you know, the first person that hears every sermon preached is me. And I'm asking myself the question, like, what, is my, what does my heart look like? Does it really look like one that's shaped by the gospel? Right? There's books, there's ministries, everything in church is right. A gospel-centered men's ministry, a gospel-centered women's ministry, a gospel-centered children's ministry, a gospel-centered this, 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 and this. Like, what are you talking about? What does that look like and what does that mean? Is Christ at the center of it? Is reconciliation through the work of Christ at the center of it? That, let's start there and talking about what the gospel is and what it's for and what it does. Primarily, it's to reconcile the sinner to a holy God by the expression of his grace and him putting forth his son as the propitiation for our sin. Let's, let's proclaim and herald the good news of the gospel. Because 
The gospel is how the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's what changes people. Do you have a heart that's shaped by the gospel? And he says, basically, and if you have, you've been set free from sin and you become slaves of righteousness. And righteousness is the requirement. Righteousness is the requirement. He hasn't made this strong, intentional push on righteousness for a little bit, but he returns back here in chapter 6, again, to bring righteousness front and center. You must have the righteousness of Christ to be in his kingdom, to have him as your master. Is your heart shaped by the gospel, by the righteousness that's been given to you by Christ? How does your gospel sound when you present it? Is it a gospel of good news? Or is it a gospel of legalism? Because a gospel of legalism is a contradiction. When you share the gospel with people, what are you sharing with them? To come to Christ, do this, do this, do this. Or is it, no, this is what Christ has done? Because the gospel, the good news, is all about what Christ has done. I think it's good for us to think of the gospel that we present and if it's consistent with what it is that we see in Scripture. Those who have been brought into slavery under God have done so because they've had a changed heart And then we see in verses 19 through 23 that slavery to God also involves really a changed life. Point number three, verses 19 through 23, is that slavery to God not only involves a changed heart, but it involves a changed life as well. There's no way a person becomes a slave of God and has their life remain the same. Because one, the, because one is a life of darkness, of selfishness, of sin and unrighteousness. The other one is a life of, of light, of Christ, of righteousness and forgiveness. So, so opposed to one another are they. That there's no way that one, when you, when you come, and, and by the way, everybody, when you're born, you are born into the kingdom of darkness. It's not like, you know, you're coming out of the womb and there's a choice. I got a fork in the road. got to choose which way I'm going to go. Like, it all funnels one direction. Born into the kingdom of darkness. And, and, and it takes the work of God to bring you out of that into the kingdom of light and therefore Change. I mean, real, I'm talking about real practical change and godliness has to result from that. If it doesn't, verse 16, you don't know that anyone, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. If you don't have a changed life, though you say you're a slave of God, it could very well be that you're still a slave to your old master. It doesn't matter what you, it's not about the information that you know. 
but have you had a true heart change? He says in verse 19, you know, I'm speaking in human terms. He's just basically, okay, let me be as simple as possible as I can. For just as you once presented your members, right, your, yourself, your life, your attitude, your actions, your thinking, your affections, all of that, you once presented all of those members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Guess what sin does? It gets worse. It, sin's, not, sin's not happy just staying bad. It wants to be even worse. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. As you used to present your members to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. There's, there's a diversion in, in the road there. One is a road of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, which ultimately leads to death. The other is a law, is a road of righteousness leading to sanctification, continued growth, positionally and progressively. Positionally, you've been sanctified. He has taken you out of this kingdom, put you into his kingdom of grace, and then he continues to go from there, growing you to be like Christ. Righteousness leads to sanctification, which means what? You must have the righteousness of Christ first in order to grow in sanctification to be like Christ. And then he begins in verse 20 to contrast the connection of, of who we were with now who we are. For you were slaves of sin. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You want to be free? I'll tell you when you were free. You were free from righteousness as an unbeliever. You think about what he has taught, what the fruit of righteousness has been that he's mentioned. Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Righteousness leads to forgiveness of sin. Chapter 4, verse 13. Righteousness is a promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 5, verse 8, righteousness leads to justification. Chapter 5, verse 18 and 21, righteousness leads to eternal life. You want to be free? You, as an unbeliever, you're free from righteousness. You're free from all that stuff. You don't have any of it. You're not a partaker in any of that. To be free from righteousness is to be in the worst possible condition that anybody could ever possibly be in. For, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You were free from justification. You were free from the promise of new heavens and new earth. You were free from forgiveness of sin. You were free from eternal life. You were free from all of that. You weren't a partaker of any of it. And then he goes on in verse 21. What fruit were you getting or did you have? This is a better way to look at it. What fruit did you have? at that time from the things which you are now ashamed. I was on a walk last, I think Monday or Tuesday night, and I was thinking, meditating on this, this verse here, verse 21, and I was thinking of the things that I used to do when I was a slave of sin and who I used to be, and I'm, I'm just utterly ashamed of those things. Things that I used, like, and, and what was, you know what was, 
You know, you start at the real obvious things. Oh, what did you used to do and who did you used to be before you knew Christ? You start at like the real obvious things. And you're like, oh yeah, I used to do that. Ugh, that was terrible. And you go, oh, and I did that too. Oh, and that, and that, and that. And the more I thought upon it, like, the more began to come to my mind, the deeper I went into that hole. And eventually I go, okay, I, I got to get out of here. Like being reminded of the things that I was just utterly ashamed of doing. Because that, that was my nature. That was who I was. A slave of sin, free from righteousness, eternal life, all those things. I look back on that and I'm ashamed. You know what? As a Christian, I should still be ashamed of the things that I do that are, more, that are more consistent with the old Nick than they are with the new. There's this tension that's still, this fight, and this is what we're gonna get into when we get into chapter seven. He's, he's setting us up for how do we really, man, like there's a real fight, there's a real struggle that goes on in the life of the believer. And sometimes we're, we still do those things of which we're ashamed. Do you ever do things? You ever do something? even now as a Christian, and you go, I hope no one finds out about this because I would be thoroughly embarrassed and ashamed by it. Our life was marked by all of that before, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart by the gospel. He's, I mean, he knew all of that, and yet he still displayed his love to us and bought us by the blood of Christ. The end of those things is death. The fruit is ultimately what he's talking about there is death. What was the fruit of the things of which you used to do that you're ashamed of? All those things that you used to do that you were ashamed of, the fruit of that is one thing, it's death. But contrasted to that in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, listen to what, listen again how he talks about this. The, the recap that he does in verse 22 for the believer, but now that you have been set free from sin, remember, okay, you just took a, a stroll down memory lane of all the things that you were once ashamed of. Bring it back. Remember that you are, have been set free from sin. Those things have no power over you, right? Sin's power, its penalty has been paid, its power has been broken, and one day the presence is going to be completely done away with. But you have been set free from sin. That is something that has decidedly already been done and accomplished for you in Christ. This is the whole thing of what he was talking about earlier in chapter 6. So you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. This is a reality. This happens simultaneously. The breaking of sin's power in your life, become a slave of God. This is what happens in the believer. The fruit that you get or the fruit that you have leads to sanctification. And it's in eternal life. And the fruit in verse 22 that he's referring to singularly, I'm convinced, is righteousness. What's the fruit that you have that leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life? He's already told us in verse 19, slaves, of, slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. 
He'll say in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. So in verse 22, he says the fruit is sanctification, leads to eternal life. Verse 23, the free gift leads to eternal life. And we saw in chapter 5, verse 17, that the free gift is Christ's righteousness. So he's telling us here, now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the fruit, the righteousness of Christ that you have leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. This is why the righteousness of Christ is so key to understand. If you, it doesn't matter what you know and it doesn't matter how often you attend church and the Bible studies and all these things that you do. If you do not have the righteousness of Christ, you are not saved. That's just the bottom line. You must have Christ's righteousness given to you, and that only comes by faith. Faith in what Christ has done upon the cross, death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, who he said that he was, who he continues to say that he is, God in the flesh. To know him by faith, to understand that you're bankrupt of all righteousness, but that you need a righteousness to be with God, to have forgiveness of sin, requires righteousness. And how he gives the righteousness of Christ to all who come to him by faith. The, the, the passage that Sam read earlier today, the problem why they wouldn't come, why wouldn't they come to Christ? Because they didn't see their spiritual bankruptcy. We got Abraham, we're good. We have never been slaves to anybody. Oh, you've got no idea who your master is. Your father's the devil. He's your master. He's the father of lies. And you don't even know it. That's how the world lives, completely blind to this fact and to this reality. And set free from sin, slaves of righteousness. And then, of course, he ends in verse 23, reminding us that the wages of sin, right, are work the wages of sin that we do, that we earn is death, but the free gift, Christ's righteousness of God is eternal life. And again, just to wrap it up, he reminds us that all of this is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He'll do this periodically to rem just at the end, just to re remind us in Christ Jesus, in Christ, in Christ, to, 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 to keep our eyes focused on him and his gift of righteousness given to us. Our life is in him, our righteousness is his, and our resting place is in him as well. So as we begin to um, get ready to partake of communion together, just again want to conclude and remind us of this. Our positional righteousness in Christ leads to progressive sanctification. And we apply ourselves in this way having become slaves of God while resting in the finished work of Christ, and we seek to behold him and thus become more like him. Behold your master. This time of communion, is we do exactly that. Our eyes are drawn back to the master. So often the disciples would say, master, master, master. Is that how you look to Christ? Master, savior. We see what it is that he's done and accomplished on our behalf. And this is the reason why we take communion every single week. Because we need the, the regular reminder 
of who Christ is, what our position is in him, that reality, so that we can functionally live out of that. This is a time of celebration. This is a time of worship. The communion table is. And so I hope that we have that heart as we come to it. And we pray and we ask, Lord, please help me to live like you, having the greatest display of love set before me and you offering up yourself on my behalf. So this time of communion is for believers. If you're visiting here today and you know Christ by faith and by faith alone, your heart has been shaped and molded by the gospel, then partake of communion with us. But if you're still looking to your own merits, if you're still trusting in something else, consider, strongly consider the bankruptcy in that and its path leading to death. And, and, and do not partake of the communion, but spend this time thinking and considering upon your condition before him and his invitation to you to come to him by faith. So the elements are on the back tables. You can get those returned back to your seat for some time of prayer, and then we'll partake of communion together here shortly.